Library of the Land podcast. My name is Karen Denry. I'm a Ratchery woman from Dubbo in New South Wales and Barkindji from Burke. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land on which we meet and acknowledge elders past and present. I'm here talking today with Dean Freeman. We're going to have a conversation about cultural and natural resource management. We're going to talk about cultural burns and other really interesting things that Dean's been up to in the cultural and natural resource management area, which I think that you will find really interesting. Dean, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me, Karen. It's great to be here. You're very, very welcome. Dean, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, I'm a Wiradjuri man from Brungle Aboriginal Reserve. Uh, that's situated at the northern end of Kosciuszko National Park in the foothills. Mm -hmm. uh, born and raised there. I've got, there's eight of us in the family basically, so I've got four, four brothers and five brothers and sisters, mum and dad, and um, we grew up around the reserve a lot. Um, we actually moved into town from a very early age before I started school, um, but most of my time is being remembered going back out to the reserve, uh, hanging around out there, playing with the cousins and relatives. Mm. And, and just enjoying the freedom out there. Fantastic. Very good. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up um, on Brungle and then also going into town and coming back? Can you share what yeah, your childhood definitely. was like? Yeah, well, I like I didn't have much of a memory then, but now speaking to mum and dad, and there's actually some some documentation about when we were actually moved into town. Yeah. So it was around the early 70s. Mum um, and dad were at the front of my grandmother's house and then the, the welfare basically came along. Wow. Um, and mummy is pretty fair. So they'd had a yarn to mum, they seen mum there, and they thought uh, she'd probably best to move into town with the children. So she was basically told that if, if she was still around when the welfare came back, then they would take, take us kids. I was the youngest at the moment then, uh, at that time. So we moved into town when I was probably you know, five or six years old. Mm. Um, and basically we were basically taken away from everything that we knew. So that was our, our safety net basically with the community. Yeah. Um, relatives, everyone we knew out there, everyone knew us. Um, everyone treated us like their own kids. Yeah. So all, the, all the, the grown ups looked after all of the kids regardless of who those kids were yeah. and made sure the place was safe. Um, once we were taken away from there, then it's seen that some of the issues started to arise. Mm. Um, and just for the fact that we were taken out of that, that area and mm. put, it in, put into a place that we had absolutely no idea about. Yeah. So it was pretty daunting. Uh, I suppose I don't remember much, but I can imagine what my older brothers and sisters went, mm. went through. Um, so, you know, they were going to school with their relatives, cousins one day. Mm. The next day they weren't there sort of thing. They were in another school. Wow. So you can, you can imagine some of the impact that that would have on, on kids. Absolutely. Um, and, and that wasn't that far, that far back. It wasn't that long ago. That's right. Yeah. So how is that for your mum when she talks about that time? Because I would imagine that that would have been so hard for her. Very hard. Yeah. And like mummy is the backbone of all of our family. Yeah. She, she sort of leaves it all. She, she had a had difficulties, I suppose, because she she was very fair. Um, she married dad, and dad dad's darker than me, um, so some of some of that would have sort of played out um, growing up. And a lot of people probably saying, you know, what are you doing with an Aboriginal man and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but but they they stuck together. Um, we we we've, we've achieved some 
pretty good things in our lives. Um, and I suppose that's from, from the guidance from mum and dad. Dad, as long as I can remember, dad worked every day of his life. Um, and he was out in the farms doing, doing the hard yakka stuff. And the one thing that I do remember is that we'd, we'd always visit the other Aboriginal people in town. So there's probably only five, five Aboriginal people in town, families. Yeah. But we would visit those people and we knew, knew those people growing up. Mm. And we still know all of their families um, today. Mm. Um, and we still got on pretty good as, as, as friends and stuff today. So yeah. it's good to see that that's lasted from, from childhood yeah. right through to now that we're, we're, we're adults. Yeah. yeah. Do you get to go back to Brungle much now? Well, funny you ask, I've actually been there for the last two weeks. Fantastic. Um, I have been going through a bit of a rough time, uh, mm. but I just made the decision to go home. Yeah. Mum still lives on the reserve, Dad's in town, and I've got a sister who lives on the reserve. So I went back home, um, just helped my sister out a bit. Um, but, you know, I was sort of unaware that it, it was helping me also. Yeah. So I'd go home and assist her and help her out with whatever she needed. Yeah. Um, and then I just found myself, you know, thinking about a lot more positive things than what I had been over the last last 12 months, last 18 months. Yeah. So, again, being back in Brungle where, where you know everything, um, you know the land there, you know the people there, mm. it just just puts a lot of stuff into perspective. And that connection that people have about being home, being on land is is hard to explain, but you, you just almost exhale and, oh, I'm just at home, yeah. I'm connected, and, and I could imagine how that would feed your spirit yes. and your soul and also your connection as well. Yeah. So I used to travel a fair bit with work when I was working in, working from Tumut with National Parks. So I used to travel you know, on a weekly basis. Mm. Uh, and then coming home, you, there'd be certain certain spots along the way where you relax. Yeah. You get to another spot and then you relax more. Yeah. And then you'd get to another spot and then you, you're sort of totally relaxed. So those places were like, if I'm coming through Jugiong, I know that's a bit closer to home. Yeah. You hit Gundagai, you go, yep, almost there. Yeah. And then you get out over this, what we call Weathers Hill, and then you're looking down into the Brungle Valley. Yeah. And it seems that a lot of stuff is just lifted off you. And the land holds so much of that information and that wisdom. And we, a lot of times we don't even realise that until we're back there and then we go, oh, yes, this is all of the things I remember and we tap exactly back right. into that. So exactly. can you talk about growing up on Brungle and then moving into town yep. and how you were able to stay connected to culture, how you learnt about culture. Yep. Can you talk us through what that was like because you're in the natural and cultural resource management yep. now and have been for most of your life. I'm really interested to know, like, how, how was that impacted? I suppose growing up, when we were out of Brungle, then, you know, the freedom out there was you, know, you, you couldn't match it in town. Yeah. So you're out... It was a pretty big area. It was a pretty open area. Um, so it was good. we, as, as cousins, we'd, we'd go out and just explore. Yeah. So we're out, you know, checking all these different things out and finding out things. Um, I'm surprised we got through to today in some of the things that we actually did. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of that stuff was we'd walk around barefoot, that sort of stuff. Today, I... Rarely let my kids walk out barefoot because yeah. I know the reaction and, and what might happen. Mm. But back then it just seemed to be normal. And we always had 
our cousins. I remember basically every day growing up, there would be one of our cousins there around us. Mm. Or I'd be at the cousin's house or they'd be over there. And in, in our way, then my cousins are my first, they're my brothers and sisters. Yeah. So that's the way we look at it. And even today, so my, my children today call my cousins uncle and aunties because we grew up as brothers. Um, but learning about stuff on the ground is like we, we used to play all different types of games. So we'd be throwing rocks all the time. We'd be making little spears out of the, out of the thistles. You know, and we didn't realise that that's, that's sort of putting you in good stead for when you do grow up. So it gives you really, really good um, hand-eye coordination when you're doing that sort of stuff. So again, it puts you in better stead as an Aboriginal person when you're going out and you have to do your hunting and gathering or whatever. Um, and as for learning about, about fire and stuff, um, we'd, we'd had fire around us every day of our lives. So I remember coming home from school, We'd have to go out the back and grab the kindling for the morning wood. Yeah. So, and you know, whoever's up first would light the fire, you know, mm -hmm. and we're like nine or 10 years old. So we learned from a very age, very young age, how to, how to, how to deal with fire and, and not, to, not to be afraid of it, yeah. is to have that respect. If you don't, like most things, if you don't have respect for that fire, then it'll come back and haunt you sort of thing. So it's mm -hmm. good to have, have that respect and, and know what, what fire can actually do. Yeah. One of the, uh, it's to be sort of interesting, some people listening to this, but one of the first fires we lit, I suppose I was with a couple of um, relatives in Chermit, so behind their house there was a bit of a pine forest. So we'd seen one of the pine trees half dead, so we thought, how would this burn? So we walked over and, and actually lit it. And it went off like crazy. <laughs> so, you wow. know, seven, eight-year-old, nine-year-old kids seeing that flame go up that tree so hard, we just ran, screamed, cried, did everything. Then when it died down, we went and did another one. <laughs> so it was, I think it was just the adrenaline, adrenaline yeah. but it was just the view of that flame in the fire yeah. um, going up that tree. It just, it's something about fire that draws you in. It's, mm. a, it's a living entity and... Mate, it's here. Yeah. We have to deal with it. We have to deal with it. It's a really good space. Yeah. Yeah. I know that, that my mother and, and that side of my mother's side of the family were droving. And so there was constant outdoors, yes. the fire. And yes. even now, uh, mum talks about when they were droving and how there were, you know, always fires. Every day there was a fire. Yep. And then when they came into town out of the tents, yes. they still had fire. Yes. And then also now that mum's living in Dubbo, she still has to be outdoors yes. and has the fire going yes. because it's that still connection that she can't be indoors. She has to be outdoors and has and has the fire. Yes. And most people can't understand why wouldn't you be inside with That's a heater right. on? Yes. She's outside with, with fire, fire. Yeah. because she grew up with it and there's nothing like sitting around a fire. Nothing compares to it. That's right. No. And, and it's just an interesting thing thinking about. Uh, I can remember a, a story I was travelling with my brother and my uncle and it was really dark. We'd stopped on the side of the road because I'm a very frightened person. We stopped on the side of the road. And my uncle said, Carrie, what would you do if I drove off? And I said, Uncle, I would die yeah. because it's dark and I'm scared. <laughs> like, let's be real. I yes. would die. Um, he, I said to him, what would you do? He said, I'd just find some kindling, light a fire and sit and wait. Yeah. He said, as long as I've got fire, yeah. I'm okay. That's right. 
Yeah. And it was really interesting that that always stayed with me, that as long as you've got fire, you're okay because you've got warmth, you can cook something, you've got light. That's right. Whereas me, I was just like, I'm going to die because I'm scared of the dark. Yep. I wouldn't think to light a fire. He was like, light a fire. It's very interesting, the perspectives of it. Yeah. Like you wouldn't light one because of whatever, but he thought straight away. Straight away. Even though fire can hurt you, it's a safety mechanism. Safety. So yeah. he lit that fire and he just felt relaxed. Yep. Had a bit of light around, and he's got heat with it. Yeah, you know, and like you said, if he's got food, then mate, he's going to survive. That's exactly with that right. Bit of fire there. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's, you know, eighty percent of people who grow up in Australia are attached to a fire. Everyone mm -hmm. likes to go out to their backyard, to a campground somewhere, and just light a fire and sit around it. Yeah. You know, and the amazing stories that you hear around campfires are some of the best stories that have come out of Australia. Absolutely. You know, just sitting around there enjoying that um, fire just sort of draws you in. Yeah. I, I've seen my kids just sitting there sort of just staring at the flame yeah. and looking into the flame and see what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And like I mentioned before, there's, there's no, no, no better feeling than actually walking with that flame. Mm. So if you've got a bit of flame and, and you're doing your cultural burn, so if there's a flame here, then you light it with a natural resource and then you take it over and plant it on the ground there, mm. that is probably one of the, the better outcomes and best feelings you could have at the end of a day, mm. knowing that you've contributed to no care for country mm. and, and the upkeep of the environment. And if we've got a clean, good environment out there, then the mm. whole world in, um, benefits from that. Right. Yeah. So in terms of cultural burn, there's a science behind it. It's not something that somebody's just made up. There's a science. Can you talk about what is the cultural burn? How do you know how, where to burn, what to burn? Can you talk through yep. um, that for me? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that, you know, the terminology, terminology itself in, in cultural burning, mm -hmm. I, I keep telling people that I talk to is that, I doubt that my great-grandfather walked up to his brother and said, let's go and do a cultural burn today. Yeah. You know, they had their fire. So our, 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 our word for fire is wean. Mm -hmm. So I've got no doubt that word was mentioned in there. So, again, we've got to come up with that yeah. correct terminology with it. Yeah. Um, but there's, 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 there's sort of no, no better feeling than being out there and undertaking that type of work for caring for country and, and getting that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, out to the public. And, mate, you, you, there's, you can learn a lot quicker, a lot faster when you're actually doing stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, we, we, we've done stuff for 65,000 years in managing the country. Yeah. Um, there's a thing out there that people call Aboriginal science. Um, I've read a bit of a paper on that and it's pretty amazing. Mm. Um, but... A lot of the lot of fire is is science. Even starting a fire is a science in itself with the combustion. Yeah. Um, but again, knowing knowing what type of timbers go together to actually create that combustion to get a fire going. Mm -hmm. Now that's that's very interesting. And like you said, it's it's not it's it's something that not everybody is aware of. People are probably aware of it, but that they haven't got that skill to get that correct wood. Mm. or to get the correct rock or whatever, you know, to get that spark and, and combust the fire to get the fire going. Mm. Yeah. Um, a lot of our, we learn a lot from fires, from lightning strikes. Okay. Because it's a natural event. 
Yeah. So when a, a lightning strike happens, it's it's a sort of a spiritual thing in cleansing the land. Okay. Wow. So, you know, we we learn a great deal of the lightning strike will hit. Yeah. And then the fire will spread out from there. Right, okay. You know, that, that's, that's a lighting technique we have today. Mm -hmm. So we put a spot on the ground instead of, instead of running a bit of a strip because that, that will give you, that's the difference in, in the intensity in some fires. So again, with different lighting patterns, um, you put a dot on the ground and that works out. Okay. So, and other times we'll put a strip along the ground, but that'll, that'll push as a wider entity. Okay. So we've got more space to push through. Okay. Yeah. So what makes it different between going out and then going back that way? Is is it just the fuel or is it the technique? Or? It's fuel, but it's also the main reason they do it is because it allows the smaller animals on the ground to escape the fire. Okay. So if we put a dot here, yeah. then the fire is starting to spread out. So them little animals, they know fire 10 times better than what we do. They know yeah. what to do in that situation. Okay. So they, they've got that opportunity. When we're doing other burns, then we might come and put a strip along, and but that will move twice as quick. Right, okay. Yes, and I've got examples I can show you on the videos here um, how that basically works. And a lot of times when we're out of fire, we'll walk past a tree and there's like 10,000 little creatures crawling straight up the tree. Right. And that's why we can't let fires get into canopies mm -hmm. and, and, and sort of go a little bit haywire. Yeah, right. but learning, you know, being around fire for 20 years, you get you get a good idea of how it reacts mm. when it hits different vegetation or, or slope and winds, so you can prepare for that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah, um, but I think if, you know, people, I work with a, a few scientists at the moment, um, they're very interested in, in, in what the cultural burning is, um, but I think if you... If you have a look at what they're doing with the ecological burns these days, I think that is very similar. Right, okay. Very similar in what we did back in the day. Mm. Yeah. How frustrating is it that Aboriginal cultural knowledge and the wisdom of the land has been around for so long and then now it's just coming out that, yeah. oh, this is actually a really good idea. Yeah. Oh, great, we should do more of this. You being in this area for you know, your whole life, but yeah. in, in your role for about 30-odd years, and then those who have taught you, how frustrating does it get to have a scientist come out and go, this is a really great idea, where you have people who've been saying, we've been doing this for years, yeah. why aren't you listening? Yeah. Can you talk through how you find that, but also... I find others? it very frustrating. Yeah. I think a lot of people in my situation or in your situation, um, with the way that it's going, I think would be very frustrated. Um, as you mentioned, we've been doing this for 65,000 years yeah. and I've had discussions with with scientists and people who've studied fire all their lives you know and they mm. we don't disagree on a lot of stuff they can see well I can see his perspective but he can also see mine yeah um but it's like saying I, I, an example would be you know if we do get somebody who studied fire for 50 years in a in a like a scientific way, yeah. just in the building, in the office, all that sort of stuff. And then if somebody walks up to them and says, mate, you've been studying something wrong for the last 50 years, yeah. you know, you can imagine how they would feel yeah. with someone saying you've been doing it wrong for 65,000 years. Yeah. yeah. The proof is there. Mm. And that's that's all we can do. 
You know, we, I tell people we, we can talk for a thousand years about it, but if we don't go out there and do it and implement it, it's basically all for nothing. Yeah. And so a lot of my experience is actually being on the ground, lighting the fire and walking with the fire. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, you learn a great deal about fire when, it, when you're walking with it yeah. and when it hits different types of vegetation. Right, okay. So that puts you in a lot, a lot of good stead. Um, I understand and I, I agree with a lot of stuff that the scientists do. That's, mm-hmm. that's their method of getting, getting a lot of truths about a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but to say something didn't work for 65,000 years is, yeah. is it's just a denial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You can understand some of that, but again, it, you've got the proof there. That's right. So why do we need to do the, the cultural burning? I think because of, um, I think a, a, we keep getting big events here, big big fire events. Um, 03 was pretty big, did a lot of damage to Canberra. Yeah. Um, and also 09, there was another fire in up in Cozzi that went through an area pretty hard. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they compared to the fires we had in 1920, I think, with the fires that, that ripped through basically a lot of New South Wales. Yeah. You know, so again, preparing for that um, and mate, we just, we, we, the Aboriginal people who are doing cultural burning say that we need to do a lot more burning, but on a smaller scale. Yeah. So Tom, sometimes when we're attempting to do a hazard reduction, sometimes that might be a little bit too big to handle. Mm-hmm. So once you put the fire on the ground, then if that fire goes over that next ridge, then you have sort of no control over it okay. with the vegetation and everything else that's there. Um, so you, you get mixed results. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you're burning an area like 5,000 hectares or something like that, you're going to have so many varying results within that. Mm-hmm. Some areas are not going to burn at all. Okay. Some will get scorched if they get an uphill run with a lot of vegetation. That will just obliterate the vegetation, but basically leaves a lot of the stalk and stem there. Okay. Um, and in some areas, it, does, it doesn't burn at all. Mm-hmm. So you yeah, have a very, very mixed bag. But we look at things where we can burn on a smaller scale, mm. where we can actually control a lot of it. Uh, a lot of, a lot of the burning I'm doing at the moment is in grasslands, okay. so you can see the fire, you can walk with the fire, you see how it reacts. But you have a lot more control over that fire. Mm-hmm. It might move a little bit quicker, but you're you're moving quick also because there's no obstacles there for you also. Right, okay. um, and and. Again, that doesn't sort of compare to a lot of the, the bigger fires. Yeah. And if we can, you know, if we put these burns in strategic places at mm. strategic times, then I think we can save, save a, lot of, a lot of heartache and the sort of stuff that comes with those big natural disasters. Mm. Yeah. And it's preparing. You know, we can, the, you can't do any better than actually prepare for something. No. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it's right. better than preparing is better than reacting. That's right. Yeah. So part of that is you go in and you you light the fires. Is there a technical term for lighting or just you light? Oh, yeah, we just light it. Light? Okay. Yes. So if we're going to have the, the lighting of it, part of it is you know where it's going to go yes. based on the vegetation that's, that's there. That's correct. But there's also a risk that it will jump a yes. thing and go down yes. and stuff. So are there contingencies in place for that or is, is it just that there is? Okay. There is. So what I, I burnt over home yep. in the last last week, I burnt a few days over there. Yeah. 
Um, we've got an open grassland area where um, the grass is probably half a metre. Okay. So if you know that about a half a metre, the flame height might get a metre or one and a half metres. Wow. Yeah. But there was no, no mid-storey or no trees. Okay. So that was only that, that, that height. Plus we had a, a dirt road on one side mm -hmm. and then an absolute green paddock on the other side. Mm -hmm. So the end result, I've got photos of it stopping right at the green. And you've, that's the difference there. Yeah. Uh, but seeing what walking with that fire and actually doing it in the in the correct place. So I I I won't pick an area where it's no. There's a lot of mid-story fuel where it might get into a canopy. I won't take a community into that yeah. situation. So I'll I'll pick an area where it is open grassland. Flame might only get a, a meter. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the, the fuel is not continuous. Okay. So if I light something here. It might run to the door and put itself out. Okay. So you've got little gaps in the vegetation like that. Okay. You know, so it's 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 just being aware of what fire can do, and actually picking those areas where it's safe for community. Mm. Uh, even though we do this stuff off around about with, with not a lot of safety gear, yeah. um, I'm very big on safety. I know that if anything happens at a cultural burn, an injury, or a burning, or something like that then they're going to look at them very, very hard mm. and, and maybe not support them mm -hmm. because mate, nobody wants to get injured. And especially if you have, have people there and not too aware of it, then an accident could happen. Mm. So again, when I go and do these burns at home, I'll, I'll invite um, young nephew across from Wagga mm -hmm. and he works with RFS at the moment and he's, he's got some good background also. Yeah. And I make sure there's at least two or three people there with a fire background so yeah. they can just keep an eye on things also. That, that leads perfectly into, can you talk about how you got involved in the area of wanting to look after country, cultural yep. nat natural resource management? How did you end up going down that road? Yep, right. I was in, um, I was living in Townsville. Okay, yeah. So I was basically concreting and hard labouring all my life. Oh, wow. Then I got to a certain age there and I just thought, well, I'm going to go and um, see what I can find to study. So just to do some studying and stuff to, to get that side of things up. Um, and I went to the Charles Sturt at uh, Townsville there, but they didn't have any sort of courses that I liked. So it also, I just went to the, the TAFE there, Pimlico TAFE. So I had a yarn to them people there and there was... Um, a couple of really good people there who had a yarn to me about uh, a course that was going at that time. It was called um, Heritage and Interpretive Tourism. Okay. So I joined that course. And another reason I joined that course is that I think 90% of the subjects you had to give an Indigenous perspective. So it was really good. Yeah. And, and the, the course it was a short course for, for people who pick up tourists from the airport and take them to their hotel. So you had to give them that really quick rundown of Australia and tourism stuff within mm -hmm. the area, maybe. Yeah. So it was, that was good. So we had people all over Australia doing that. And then within that course, you had to get up and say that what you, why we're doing the course and what it wanted to achieve out of it. So I got up and basically said, well, you know, I want to work back in Kosciuszko National Park where I grew up um, within five years. So a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice, then I got there, I think, in four or five years. Wow. So I got a traineeship here in Canberra over the phone. 
Um, so I was lucky enough to get that. Um, came down here, did my time here, and then um, I started working with some fellows from National Parks, New South Wales National Parks in Queanbeyan. Mm. Made some connections there, and then, um, yeah, they just did some sort of research and investigations and surveys, and then they actually created a job back over home. So I applied for that and was very lucky to get it. So I achieved that goal with, I think, four or five years. Wow. And being back home on country, doing doing cultural heritage is is probably the ultimate for anyone working on country or working with 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 their cultural stuff. Yeah. Um, you know that your ancestors created a lot of that sort of stuff, so you're 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 charged with keeping it up and finding out more, I suppose, and spreading spreading more about that cultural side of things. Mm. Um, so I did it in that amount of time. But again, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice to actually get there. Mm. And a lot of it was done, I suppose, so, you know, the kids could see that something was happening yeah. and were actually out there putting in the effort and contributing. Mm. And, um, yeah, I think especially with the two older ones, now that they're, they're, they're going great guns, yeah. mate, and they're, they're happy as Larry in doing what they're doing yeah. and they're contributing in, in a big way. Fantastic. So it all, all worked out just from that little course. Wow. Yeah. So Gosh. it went very well. So how long have you been in the industry for? Ooh. I don't want to make you show your age yeah, or anything, well, you know, because you look like 21, so. Yes. <laughs> I've been doing about 26, 27 wow. years now. That's a long time. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, you never stop learning. Yeah. You know, you can do cultural heritage all your life. You're not going to know everything. Yeah. Yeah, and you're learning something different every day, um, a different perspective. Yeah. You're talking to a different person. You know, you talk to three different people about the one spot, you'll probably get three different really good stories. Yeah. You know, but they're all relevant to that area. Absolutely. So that's that's the good thing about it. And just knowing that um, knowing that mum and dad put in the effort yeah. to, to make life good for us yeah. was, you know, it's sort of, yeah. You owe it to them or you, you want to make, make sure that you don't, don't go the opposite way, basically. Yeah. So it's it's carrying on what they passed on to you. Um, you know, you're supposed to sort of advance every generation. Mm-hmm. So I think within within us, we've done that done that pretty well. Yeah. Um, and it it'd be good to see where the kids are in another ten years. Mm-hmm. You know, just because of what we do here. Fantastic. And I I only go to work now basically because I used to get up. With that, when I was 12 or 13, and go and help him move irrigation pipes out in the paddocks. Yeah. You know, and then uh, you just get that feeling that you have to get up and contribute and do things. You can't, can't sit still for too long. Yeah. You know, and, it's, and once you find your space and where you're supposed to be and what you, what you deliver, mm-hmm. um, the whole cycle of life, it just gets easier. Yeah. Yeah. God. Yeah. So learning, doing the courses and learning the information there and then going out on country and then can you also talk about how important it was for those who were also in the industry because it's like a brother and sisterhood, you know, you're involved in that. Yes. It's very, very close-knit. Can you talk about how important it was with the sharing of that information yep. and what happens if what you learnt in the book and at uni is different when you yeah. get out on country and what you're yeah. being told. How do you manage that? Yeah. Well, my first introduction was uh, to artefacts. 
mm-hmm. is they, when I did this course in Townsville, they, they flew me and another, uh, another young girl out to Lawn Hill National Park. So we wanted to do the National Park thing and tourism. So we, they flew us out there and then there was a, a fellow by the, name, by the name of Andrew Water. Andrew introduced me to artifacts. And, you know, once I'd seen them, I'd just realised I'd been walking over those all my life, stepping on them, kicking them, throwing them. Um, once that introduction was made, then I'd sort of got, got the bug. Yeah. And mate, when you show your own family, um, especially the younger ones, that this artefact here was made by a human being mm. for such and such a purpose, yeah. then you can see their eyes get a bit of a bit of a light in and they want to find out a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. And going around with different people, different perspectives. As I mentioned, I learned about the artefacts up in one new country, up at yeah. top of um, just above Mount Isa. Wow. Okay. You know, and then coming back down here, very, very similar artefacts, just different rock type. Yeah. So that... You know, that technique was basically across Australia and people shared that all the way through. Wow. You know, so that was, that's a really good eye-opener. Mm. Um, one of the better things, I, I suppose, is getting the perspectives of, of, of the gender thing that we do, mm. like male and female stuff. Mm. You know, we have totally different perspectives on a lot of stuff, um, but there's so much stuff that we get out there and we do together. Mm. You know, and yeah. we had some had some stuff go on not too long ago. We had a big corroboree out at um, Gundagoy. Mm. And, you know, it's a traditional ceremonial ground there. Mm. So I got up and I, I spoke about what it meant, yeah. what it meant for the people to be there now at the time. Um, but it, I made sure that I, I, it, was a, it was a male and female event. Yeah. So, you know, the, the women are coming along and giving the children away and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So that was all combined. Yeah. And... The end result of those ceremonies is what brings community together. Yeah. Doing and going through all that sort of stuff and celebrating it, um, you come out, come out so much better as a community. Yeah. And I think that's what um, that's what fire does. Mm. Yeah, it's like a common denominator that will get people in. Yeah. Once those people are in there, then they're discussing the whole community. Yeah. So we always say that when we go and heal the, the land. Yeah. then we're unknowingly healing ourselves. Yeah. And that is, a, that, is, that is something to actually witness um, and see, see people do that. Mm. that is, that's sort of the ultimate in what we do. Yeah, changing people's per- perspectives mm. about cultural heritage, but also about themselves. Yeah. yeah. So it's a really, really good space. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And it's very much about that cultural sharing of the knowledge and passing that on simply by being That's right. with your family or uncles or or whoever, being able to be in that space and just watching, picking up on what's That's happening. Right. You can't get that unless you're actually in that That's space right. doing that. Yes. And that happened Oh, on a, on a daily basis with national parks. Wow. So when I joined national parks, there were some people there that had been in there doing this stuff for quite a while. Yeah. You know, and and we basically learn ninety percent from listening. Yeah. So while they're sitting there, you know, you've, your ears are just open and listening to what they're saying and taking it in. Mm-hmm. You know, and then some of the stories you'll hear from from one area, then you might hear something very similar from another area. Mm. You know, and then you start matching that sort of stuff up. Yeah. You know, and that, that's, that's a really good feeling, um, especially knowing, knowing that might relate to some song lines. 
trade routes, travel paths, all that sort of stuff. Mm. So, you know, when you're sitting down and there's some elders and that sort of stuff there, right, mm. just, yeah, listen, because they, some of the stuff, they, even a lot of elders don't realise the information they have is, yeah. is extremely important yeah. and significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting because my brother was involved with national parks as well for, for a long period of time. And he would talk about going and sitting with the uncles on the riverbank. And he would say, fishing's not about fishing. He would go out and he would have to sit with them for the amount of time that they thought he was ready for exactly. that information exactly and right. it was never on government's time frame and when his bosses would say to him i need to have that information you need to organize that meeting he would say definitely not happening yes. Yes. how did you find balancing what community expectations are and what you get and that information given to you and then also the government yep. organization th that you work for yep. how did you how do you walk that path it's it's difficult yeah. um a lot of times you're seen as a government person Person. Yeah. So a lot of community sort of, you know, test you out before yeah. they give you any information. Yeah. But then again, government sees you as a community person. Yeah. So, you know, you are stuck in two worlds. Um, and the biggest thing is, you know, translating that government message into the community message yeah. and getting the support of the community. Mm. Um, the main thing I say is if you're going to contact the community, be upfront. Yeah. If you if you can help them, go in and assist and help them. Mm. You know, if you can't, then just be upfront with it. Yeah. I know growing up in the earlier years that we we trained in everything that was possible, yeah. that was available, yeah. but there was no end result with a with a job. Yeah. Wow. You know, so doing that sort of stuff there, it's you get you prepare yourself for sort of six months work of the year. Mm. When you're doing those types of courses, yeah, and it uh, it doesn't it gives you the skills and that sort of stuff, but it doesn't give you a lot of energy, yeah. you know. And I think that's that's what we need to actually get out there some energy to to push this stuff forward and getting those results that people people are looking for. You know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, or even maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was very much about making sure that farmers were happy and the cultural and natural resource management was an afterthought. That's right. And then, yes. you know, can you talk about what happened when farmers destroyed a site what was the process about that? How did you yep. work through that? How was community with that? Can you share yep. that? Yeah. It's, um, I've, I've been to, in a few situations, I suppose, uh, where we, we used to go out to properties. Um, if a farmer had had a significant site there, then, you know, we could con contribute to the protection of that. Mm -hmm. I did that probably 20 or 30 times, um, uh, I suppose, to that spot. Once, once I left that the farm and the discussion, I'm not too sure what actually happened after that. Yeah. Whether that site was protected or or whether they just, you know, don't worry about it. It'll be safe by itself. Mm. I do know for a fact that the fines for cultural heritage destruction, mm. uh, people just don't worry about them. Yeah. So you know, developers come across the site. The fine, the fine might only be five thousand dollars. You know, and these are multi-millionaire developers, so they just pay the fine and keep moving. Yeah. You know, there needs to be something else that'll actually going to make them stop and think about it. Mm. Um, and we have so many 
examples out there of people destroying sites and and it's there's no deterrent at all. The fines are no deterrent. I've seen a video where there's a bloke on a tractor yeah. going through a site, mm. you know, and there was the fine wasn't big enough for, to, to make him stop. So just sort of kept on going with it. Mm. And that's very disappointing, yeah. you know, and especially when those sites are in the area there with those local people, that's probably the most significant thing they've got. Wow. And because a lot of times we see uh, some of some significant sites in that make the news exactly know, so but how many of those other significant sites are there that get destroyed that you don't even hear exactly about? exactly right you know? yes can you tell me what you love most about your job well i suppose the the, the main thing is that i'm i'm doing my culture so i'm i'm, I'm actually I've been employed to actually practice my culture and yeah. learn about my culture and, and spread the good word about my culture. Mm. You know, and that's, that's, I suppose that's what everyone would love to do mm. who's in this type of field. Uh, but the energy you get from learning this sort of stuff and passing it on, then you'd hope that, you know, your kids and other people in the family pick it up and, and, and push with it. When, you now we've spoken before about fire, Fire is basically a common denominator. Mm. So once you get people out to a, a fire, then they're discussing everything, what's going on in the community. Mm. So they're, as I mentioned before, we're healing the country. Um, and while these discussions are going on, then people are actually healing themselves. Mm. How does that happen? My, it's just, I think people just relax. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've done another really good project that I've done is repatriations. Uh, from museums back to communities. So when you do that sort of stuff, then you put it in a way that it could be anybody's relation or ancestor in that mm. repatriation. Can you talk through a bit about that? It's for people that may not know about what that yeah. is. Yeah, so the repats are when, you know, we've got a lot of stuff that was taken from country and mm. put into museums. Um, a lot of those were burials. Okay. So, you know, a lot of farmers would come across burials when, when they were doing their farm work and that sort of stuff. So they'd get onto the, the museum, the police, and, and then store them. Mm -hmm. So when I came on board with National Parks, there was a, we actually had a repatriation officer there um, with a list mm -hmm. of all the repats from my area, basically. So we, we went and fixed a few up. There were some in some, in some caves. So we went and fixed those up, uh, but there, there were others that were in museums. Wow. So we called a meeting in, again, you know, we don't know who this person is, it could be related to anyone in this community. So, mm. you know, our community got involved in it. So we got about five or six elders, went to Sydney and um, wrapped the remains mm -hmm. and then brought those remains back, back to Brungle. Mm. So now we've got those remains up in our cemetery. We've got our own Aboriginal cemetery there. Um, so, you know, the feeling around that also is, brings community together. Mm. Again, they were there talking about doing the burial, but while they're doing the work, they're discussing other things in the community. Mm. And again, they're, they're healing themselves. And these, these projects, you know, even though you, know, you do deal with remains and spirits and that sort of stuff, but we're there on a positive note. Mm. So the main thing is, you know, doing that sort of stuff, have those positive thoughts um, about doing the right thing for that individual. Yeah. And you don't get frightened with the spirits? Oh, you get frightened. You get frightened, okay, because I'm scared. Like, I'm just, I'll be, I'll be real honest, I'm real you frightened. You get frightened. You're, you're, you're frightened too? Good. Frightened. Okay, great. 
the yeah. New South Wales boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they invited me up to up to an area to check out some some remains. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we get there, I'm the smallest bloke there. So I thought these blokes brought me along just to get in that cave. So <laughs> I, they get, get ready, Dino. So they prepared me with some cultural stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I, I went into the cave, um, just having a look like that, and then I looked down one of these chutes mm-hmm. and there was remains there. Wow. So old uncle there was just looking right at me. Wow. So, you know, you get a bit of a how you going sort of thing. and mm-hmm. then But again, you know, you're, you're there to do the right thing. Yeah, you're there on a positive note, yeah. and you're actually assisting in the in the process of this this burial and stuff. Absolutely, and I, I could imagine. Thank you so much for sharing that. I could imagine the honour of being a part of that to help bring somebody and lay them back in in yeah. country. You know, the the, the uh, connection that you would have yeah. with them and the the respect that that. I guess they would know that you're doing that to help and stuff would, would be so... Yeah. Um, it's the pride that comes, what it comes yeah, out of you. Yeah. You know, and, mate, a lot of times you just go and do your work and then you're gone again, you know, and you, you sit down and think about it later on and that sort of stuff. But it does give you the energy, the drive, the incentive, whatever you want to call it, yeah. to get up the next day and go and do it again. Yeah. 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 There seems to be very much that... Ground swell at the moment. It's I don't know if it's a cosmic shift or it's a cultural shift. Something's happening in that it's very much the you know the cultural burns, the corroborates yeah. that are happening. It's that connection to country and the pride that seems to be coming out yeah. is is fantastic. That we're starting to have it, and and I love that we're doing this because we're having those hard conversations, That's exactly right. which yes. is great because we need to have them yeah. and not shy away from the fact that we need to have these these conversations and the space to be able to talk about this stuff to go, you know, one part of the game, things were not so great. No. But we can talk about why it's so important. And I love that you have taken the time to come and talk to me today to share this because you've shared so many fantastic stories. And I love that you're openly sharing about, you know, what you've been through Mm. and how helpful it is to be on country and how that heals. Because, again, for a lot of people, they, they wouldn't, get it so much, yeah. they would know that, oh, okay, so you go somewhere and you feel better. But the, the importance of that connection yes. uh, is is so important for us. And so I love that you're so honest with us about that. Yeah, it's good. You know, so, so I really appreciate that. Can you share what's frustrating for you in your role? Right, yes. The, the, I, I suppose when we're, when we're doing the cultural burning thing, it's, um, you know, I find that one of the biggest Biggest obstacles to cultural burning is some of the policies. Mm, okay. I support some of them policies, especially around the safety mm-hmm. and, and training people to deal with fire. Mm. Um, a lot of community know fire, but they might only know that smaller aspect of a you know, barbecues, campfires, all yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, the thing that put me in good stead for it is I've seen some of the biggest wildfires we've had in Australia. Mm-hmm. So you, you learn that respect. Um, you get respect from it, but there's no no sort of comparison to actually doing one of your your cultural burns on, on country. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's a policies around around doing that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, biggest difficulty we have, I suppose, is convincing people that we can burn it when it's not bone dry. Mm-hmm. So a lot of areas now I'm burning at the moment are probably 
50-50 with, with moisture and dryness. So it goes through, it dries, it dries a bit of it out, but it, it basically goes through and burns all the dead stuff. Mm. Um, two days later, the majority of that other stuff is dry because of the heat going through it. Yeah. So you can go back and burn over that also two days later. Okay. You know, a lot of people are not sort of aware of that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's frustrating just convincing people that it works. Yeah. And, and we say, well, look, it's in the proof. Yeah. They need evidence before the proof sometimes. So that's, that's, that's a difficult little area. Yeah. But once they come out and they, they, they see the results and they actually see our community's doing, mm. then the, they support it. Mm. They support it a lot. Now, here in the ACT, the fire framework, uh, it just slid straight into the fire program. Okay. So that, that worked pretty well. Wow. Some of the projects I do around that, mm. um, I've got to go out and do fuel hazard assessments. So that's working out how much you know, flammable fuel is next to maybe a rock art site. Okay. Yeah. So we, once we work that out, then we go to the next step of dealing with that. So we'll go in with machinery and we can remove that heavy vegetation. Okay, yeah. So a perfect example was when we had the auroral fires here. So, you know, the lead up to that fire, we were going in, we didn't know the fires were coming, but it's a part of our work that we go in and do this vegetation removal. Mm. So a couple of those sites, you, when you do your fuel hazard assessment, it goes from low to catastrophic or extreme. Yeah. Most of them were extreme wow. because you had vegetation pressing on the rock. So we cut that vegetation down to about you know, 10 centimetres, about 20 metres back. So when the fire came, it hit that area and then it basically died out. Wow. You know, and that saved, that saved all the rock art in, in the Magic National Park. Wow. And that's, that's through the work that we're doing yeah. um, with, with and around the rock art. And I've, um, there is a very significant rock art here that it does get a lot of visitation. Mm. Um, it had a boardwalk on, in the front of it. Mm -hmm. um, we went up the fire. We could see the fire coming. We knew the fire was around. So we actually went in the day before, removed the boardwalk, yeah. and then the fire came through the next day. And wow. if if we didn't remove the, the boardwalk, the boardwalk would have burnt and just cracked and probably got rid of and disappeared all the, the rock art that was there. Yeah, yeah and we use fire um, to protect the sites from fire. Yeah. So. And that's a really interesting thing. You use fire to protect the sites from fire. It is. You know, it's very. So yeah. we will go in and burn that area out, yeah. you know, before the, the hotter months come in. Yeah. And by the time the, the hotter months are there, then the vegetation's only very small still. Yeah. You know, so if, if the fire's coming along, it hits that area and it just calms the whole fire down because yeah. there's no fuel. You yeah. know, the flame can only get that high. Yeah. Yeah. So that's if, again, that's, that's knowing fire and what it can do in different vegetations. Yeah. Yeah. And it puts you in a really good stead when you're out there fighting those, those wildfires. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess the great thing about the knowledge, knowing that the fire is coming and we need to move the vegetation, we need to move the boardwalk to stop it and then having the support to go in and do that as exactly. opposed to saying, oh, actually, no, it'll be okay. Like, we'll just very, leave very it. Very, very good point. You know? Very good point because when we went there, we had people, like we're all parks and conservation people, yeah. but I think there were people from like seven or eight different sections, departments. Wow. 
but we had a common goal to go in there and protect that. Yeah. And it was amazing. I've got a um, time lapse and some photos of it. Yeah. Mate, it's, it's a, it was a very good outcome for that project with so many different people involved in it. And that's a really positive story of something that could have turned out really bad. And the great thing about uh, departments working together, sections working together exactly right. for a common good, yes. being focused on that, which is, which exactly is just right. fantastic. And now another good thing about here is that when the fires did happen, then I was charged with a couple of other Aboriginal staff to go out and put in protection measures on some of these sites. Fantastic. You know, so we're, we're out in wilderness areas and putting putting a clear mineral earth line around a big massive scar tree so it wow. didn't get burnt. And then the fire would just, just travel past those. Yeah, absolutely. How do you deal with or is there any politics when you're caring for somebody else's country and how do you manage that because your heart is in caring for all of the country? Yep. Can you talk through how you are able to manage that and, and if there is something to manage around it? Yeah. Well, you know, you, it varies from different places. Okay. When when I first came across into the ACT, we things were going unbelievable. We had a really great team here. We had a Ngunnawal man here as our senior Ngunnawal ranger, mm. and my things were things were firing along, going great guns. Yeah. Um, I think he sort of once he left, and things started to fall down a little bit, mm -hmm. um, and and people weren't sort of as positive. I get a lot of support through the community here. I suppose a lot of the people that do support me are not in those positions to to give the go-ahead. Yeah. So we need those sort of people to come in also and support what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of times I might not get supported because I'm, I'm really big on the safety side of things. Yeah. And, and my biggest fear about, you know, cultural burning is that we're going to get some people who go out there and and think they know burning yeah. and it's gonna go a bit haywire. Yeah. You know, and someone might get injured. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that happens, then they're just gonna cut cultural heritage, cultural burning altogether. Yeah. I think a lot of people, if they wanna do the cultural burning, then it's their best to do it on their own lands, mm -hmm. learn about it on their own property. Yeah. They can burn their properties. Like now you don't need a, a fire permit at the moment. It's good to let people know that you're going to light, mm -hmm. um, but you're on your own land. You mm -hmm. own it. Um, but I've I haven't ran into too many difficulties of not not burning on other people's country. Okay. So I did. I've, I've done cultural burns here. I've done them down the south coast. I've done them out at Wagga. I've done them in Yass, in Goulburn, and I've done them with the Nambri mob out here. And wow. you know, I so what I would absolutely love. I know that all of these. All these people and places I just spoke about, they're all related. They all have connections. So I, I imagine if all those people got together as, as, a, as an entity or something mm -hmm. and then they started discussing and pushing with cultural burning. Wow. The, the, the area that they would manage there would, would be unbelievable yeah. and they'd have some really good results. And some of the results that communities and stuff are getting now is what's making some of the agencies take notice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, it's burning on that smaller scale, not going out there trying to cure the whole land in one day. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's and good. It, and it is so great that that's now coming back because, you know, again, we talked about having those conversations about that's how it was. You weren't allowed to speak the language right. and you weren't allowed to practice culture. And so that's part of the history. And now bringing it back where it's it's not the same, but going out and being able to walk, the fire, yes. have those conversations, bring yes. those words and language back. Very much. Know, so fantastic. There was a... A uh, bit of a thing in the Tumut paper last week. Um, they had uh, well, they had Backroads show, ABC Backroads was on, and they showed Mum, Arnie wow. Sone, and a few of the other Aboriginal people there. Mm -hmm. um, so when that came on, then there's a bit of social media stuff there, mm -hmm. and then some people I was saying I wasn't expecting that, wasn't allowed to do that, and why didn't we see this, and you know why are we highlighting this? Mm -hmm. And one of the comments that stood out is that. Um, he said, I really love the show. I said, he said, we've got all different kinds of people here. They come through the snowy hydro. Mm. You've got a lot of Europeans. Um, and he said, but the difference is, he said, all of those people are allowed to speak their language. That's right. He said, Aboriginal people weren't allowed to. Yeah. He said, I had mates here with Italian who could speak Italian. Mm. They were allowed to do that. Yeah. You know, Aboriginal people weren't allowed to, to speak mm. their own language or do their own culture. Yeah. And that is a massive difference. And I thought that was really good that that bloke actually recognised and seen that yeah. and made a public comment about it. If you wanted to leave people with one thing to remember or one thing to think about or one thing that you'd like to share, what would that be? Mate, if you believe in something, go for it. Mm. Yeah, it's the same old thing. You know, you can't tell people enough. You, you, and, and, and have some confidence in yourself. We as Aboriginal people, are put down on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So you've got to look for, the, look for the good in yourself yeah. and go out and contribute. Yeah. And the main thing that gets me through is having support of family. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of people out there who don't support me. I don't worry about that sort of stuff. I, I concentrate on the people who are supporting me. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I can go and have a positive conversation about, yep, yeah. and sleep peacefully. Yeah. Fantastic. So it's, it's great. Yeah. Really good to be here. Nah, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for spending the time sharing your story with us. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. You are a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and I just love you because you're my brother. I love to sit and yarn with you. But I also love you bringing out that wisdom that you have that, that comes from those years of the experience that you get to share and, and hopefully... Uh, people who are watching and listening to this get a taste of that as well, yeah. um, you know, which is so fantastic. So thank you again so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I just want to say thank you again to Dean Freeman, Rajri Man from um, Brungle, uh, for taking the time to have this conversation with us today. So thank you, my brother. I would just like to thank you for inviting me. So we always say when we do this stuff, we can... We can talk all day, but if we haven't got an audience or if no one invites us out, then it's basically nothing. So this is what we look forward to, to get those positive stories out there. So thanks to you and the team for allowing it to happen. You're very welcome. Cool. Thank you.